me and my partner, Officer Caesar, we were out just doing our routine patrol, and we were actually right by Queens Criminal Court. Jeff Peck is retired from the NYPD. Back in 2006, he was a police officer in the Queens South Auto Larceny Unit. We see numerous marked units from the 112 flying down Queens Boulevard, lights and sirens, and they're putting over a description of a, a green Cadillac just fired at a person on the corner. It was Saturday, August 26th, 2006, 1.30 a.m. The victim was an off-duty NYPD lieutenant driving a red van. A spray of bullets flew through his front windshield, just missing his head. This was the ninth shooting of the night and the fifth red vehicle targeted. So we start canvassing and a green Cadillac actually passes us. We turn around and we spin on the car and we run the license plate and it comes back to a Dodge Ram. We pull it over. There are no passengers. Officer Peck approaches the driver. His arms and shoulders were out of the car with his hands up. I just initially thought that he was pulled over before and he knew why he was getting pulled over because his car matched a description of a guy shooting people randomly. So I start engaging in conversation with him. And I said, hey, you know, the plates don't match the car. He goes, oh, I know it takes like 30 days. I just got the car registered. I said, you know, you're right, no problem. While this is going on, Officer Caesar is shining a flashlight into the passenger's side of the car. At that moment, I look across the roof of the car and I see my partner with his eyes wide as can be. Caesar makes a hand gesture that signals his partner to keep talking. And he ducks down and grabs a gun off the passenger seat, which startles the driver because he didn't realize he thought I was by myself. The floor of the car was littered with spent shell casings. At that point, that's when I knew this is the guy. So I just played it off. I said, what is that? He's like, I don't know. I go, there's a gun in your car. Like, what, what do you mean you don't know? He goes, I just left Goldfingers. I'm like, the strip club on Queens Boulevard, that Goldfingers? He's like, yeah. I have my car valeted and I get back in the car and now you tell me there's a gun in my car. I said, those valets, they do it all the time. They're carrying, they get spooked. They'll just drop a gun under a seat in someone's car and not even realize it. I said, you're not the first person this happened to, believe me. So he's like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah. I said, but you gotta do me a favor. You gotta step out of the car. As I'm putting him in handcuffs, he's pleading with me. He's telling me, please, you know, this that's not my gun. I swear I don't know where it came from. So I just reassured him, I calmed him down. I said, if it's not yours, it's not yours. You'll be going home in a few minutes. Peck and Caesar's calm and steady demeanor might have saved their lives. I let him believe that I believed his story. And as long as he believed it, there wasn't even a confrontation. If I questioned him on it and challenged his story, it could have been a lot different. You're listening to Breaking the Case, a true crime podcast written and produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. In the final episode of season two, we bring you the second and last installment of The Queen Sniper, after nine shootings and seven hours of terror in Queens, a suspect is in custody at the 109 precinct. The search is over, but the detective's night is just beginning. We had to go in there armed with information, let him know this is what we know. We know you did it. The pressure is on as they prepare to meet the suspect face to face. Coming up after the break. Then all of a sudden, the door of the squad opens up. That's Detective Dom Satori. He was the lead investigator on the Queen Sniper case. And they bring this huge, he seemed huge to me. He's probably about as tall as I am, six feet tall, but he looked 10 feet tall to me. And he's in handcuffs and he's wearing sunglasses. It's two o'clock in the morning. 
Satori started off their relationship with a few formalities. Without missing a beat, I said, all right, guys, just uh, bring him into the interview room. I'm going to search him again. In his pocket, I find more bullets and cocaine. He also finds $150 in cash. I take off the sunglasses because, you know, we're inside. There's no reason for sunglasses on. We sit him down there and we leave the room because I want to talk to the officers that stopped him. And that's when they were able to tell me how they came across him. Satori and his partner, Detective Jimmy Grata, weren't sure if the suspect would even talk. Here's Grata. He retired as a detective in 2015 and now works in the private sector. You know, he just kept on pointing up to the ceiling, pointing down. We we're going to have our hands full. Given that he reeked of alcohol and that he was likely high on coke, Satori wanted to slow things down. I go in and I ask him if he wants something to eat, something to drink. Somebody had brought donuts and coffee because there was 40, 50 detectives there. So wherever there's detectives, there's usually donuts and coffee. <laughs> and he nods, yes. So I get him a cup of, and it was hot, steaming hot coffee because it, it had just got there and a donut, and I bring it into him. And I'll never forget that he takes that cup of coffee and he drinks it like it's cold water. Like it didn't even phase him that it was scalding hot. While the suspect drinks his coffee, Satori and Grata have work to do. Here's Satori again. We couldn't go into the room and speak to him off the cuff. We had to go in there armed with information, let him know this is what we know. We know you did it. We needed to get times, how, what, where, when, who the victims were, contact information for them, uh, maybe a map of, of where it was occurring, because maybe some information could have been gleaned from how he was driving or where he was driving. Is the green vehicle involved in every case? Were there red vans present near the people who were walking on the street that got shot? Any similarities that we could put together, we were trying to get together. Officer Peck recalls seeing the suspect through the mirrored glass of the interview room. He was in there for hours just playing pretend handball against the walls. So we're like, is this an act? What is he doing? It was going to be a long night. At New York Hospital, Queens, shooting victim Todd Upton was in critical condition. His wife of 27 years, Mary Upton, was there with their three kids, college senior Angela, 19-year-old Erin, who had been in the car with her parents when the shooting took place, and 16-year-old Keith, who stayed home in Massapequa that day to work. My son was the most heartbreaking because he hadn't been with us that day. And so he... um. He was bent over one of the hospital tables, you know, that they push up to your bed, just saying, Dad, I'm so sorry. Dad, I'm so sorry. Todd was losing a lot of blood. The nurses moved the family to an empty room next door. About two hours passed while they waited for him to stabilize. All of a sudden, I started to see Todd's numbers going down on the monitors, and then the alarms went off, and um, they pulled a crash cart over, and they threw a um, curtain right in front of our faces around Todd and tried to revive him. And uh, it took like a harrowing five or eight seconds. And then we heard his heart beat again. This happened a number of times. Todd Upton's heart rate would go down. Doctors and nurses would revive him. Finally, it was close to five o'clock in the morning and I saw the nurse coming toward us and I knew, I knew she was gonna ask me to make a decision. and. I said to her, are you gonna ask me to make a decision? And the kids were screaming, no, no, no. 
And I said, can you just give him one more, you know, unit of blood? Um, his brother's on his way here on a plane. He's not going to land until 8.15. If you could keep him alive, I would really appreciate it. So she said, we'll let you in. And okay, we'll do that. Mary had also asked for a priest to administer last rites. Evidently, there was no priest assigned to the hospital, but there was a, um, a nun. And they said they would have her come, you know, to Todd's bedside. At 5.25, I looked over and I saw his heart rate was down to like 20 beats a minute. And I said, this is it, right? And the nurse said, yeah. And uh, we're all crying and holding him. And there was a police officer that was assigned to be up there with us. And he was kind of in the shadows most of the night. His name was Officer Healy. And uh, he came over and um, the nun offered us communion. And we all said we wanted to receive and I invited him and he said, no, I, I don't want to intrude. And I said, really, it isn't, you've been here. And so he received with us and even shared with me that he had lost his partner in 9-11 and recently had a newborn son and he named his son after his partner. And I just felt this closeness this man shared, you know, my husband's last minutes of his life as we did. And um, it was unbelievable. Um, Just such a comfort to have someone else there, you know. We'll be right back. When the boss of the 109 detective squad heard that two patrol officers had caught the suspect, he was surprised that it went off so easily. Here's Chief Thomas Conforti, who had the rank of lieutenant back then. I think it's okay to say, uh, at some point, I think I was scared. I was scared that this individual was so out of control. And, you know, you think, put in perspective being a law enforcement agency, usually you're not used to situations where you're not in control. For a good five, six hours, this individual was in control. And we, we really didn't have any kind of latitude to try and quell it. For somebody that needs to be in control, it's not a great feeling. By around four in the morning, Grata and Satori were ready to get down to business. Here's Detective Grata. We went in there with a mindset, you know, we're just going to shoot the breeze with the guy. We're like, we're, we're just a bunch of guys hanging out, so to speak. At first, the suspect put up a wall. In the beginning, he wouldn't talk. He was all like the whole act with the sunglasses on, the cigarette out of the side of the mouth, taking deep breaths and just punching the the stool that he's sitting on the bench. And I'm sure in his head he's thinking, you know, how do I get out of this or what do I got to say? So we just let him, we gave him time. Minutes ticked by. And then finally we just started trying to talk to him like, hey, listen, you know, what's bothering you? Here's Satori. He begins to tell us a wild story about why he's doing this. His uh, initial admission is that the gang members were after him. Blood gang members were after him, and that they were driving red vans, because that's the color of the blood gang, and that he was protecting himself from this attack that was coming towards him. And he went on with that for a while, and, he, and, he, and then he moved on to that the weapon he had gotten from Lucifer. I remember in the beginning, you know, he would just say, oh yeah, Lucifer sent me. Shortly after 5.30 in the morning, there was an interruption. While this is happening, uh, while we're, we're talking to him, there's a knock on the interview room door. Um, so I go to the door. Jimmy continues to talk to him, and it's one of my partners, Frank Johnson. I kind of step outside the door a little bit, 
because I don't want him to hear what we're talking about. And Frank Johnson says, Todd Upton died. Now, it took me a little bit aback because the information I initially got was he was stable and he was going into surgery and it looked like he was going to be okay. But now he's gone. So now I know this has gone from serious to real serious. As the conversation resumes in the interview room, a crowd has gathered on the other side of the two-way mirror. Bosses, detectives, everyone wants to hear what the guy is saying. One of the people watching was Lieutenant Conforti. He would only talk about inconsequential things. And I remember looking in originally and not giving too much hope to the fact that this guy was going to confess. And I remember going to Dom and uh, having to hit him with the questions because I'm getting the calls from the higher-ups. And, you know, plus I want to know if, you know, he did this, everything, it's him, no possibility that there was another person in the passenger seat or what have you. And I remember Dom in a nice, calm, collective way says, boss, just... I got this, I'm gonna do this, just give me time, I'm gonna get it. As a supervisor, getting phone calls from supervisors about me, you know, that's not the answer you wanna hear, but you put a lot of trust in that individual. At a certain point during the interview, the suspect relaxes. Here's Grata. He just started saying that, you know, he, he's uh, he's upset, and uh, so he said, we all have issues, and just wanted to break him down to feel comfortable with us, and that's where the point where he just, he did get to the point where he was saying, like, hey, you know, I feel like I can hang out with you guys and play cards, and so we got him in that zone. Then he opens up. I'm having a bad day. That's what he, that's what he said, you know, and that's what started off the premise, you know. I'm having a bad day, and I'm like, all right, so we'll work off on that. What's so bad? What's so bad about you? Well, I have bad days too. The suspect said he was having problems with his girlfriend, who was also the mother of his son. The week before, a fight turned violent and an order of protection had been issued against him. He'd been living out of his car. He had a lot of concern with his kid, about his, his son, so we were trying to play off on that. Like, listen, you know, you want to see your son and what happened. I'm sure he looks up to you. We're trying to build him up maybe so he feels better about himself. Satori takes the conversation to another level. Slowly and carefully, he reads the suspect his rights. He goes out of his way to explain the Miranda warnings in layman terms. The suspect waives all of his rights. As the conversation continues, he makes a few small admissions. Yeah, I was driving here, or I, I got the gun from a, I found it in a garbage bin. So he admitted that he did have the gun. He wouldn't say exactly the truth. So it was all pieced together. We had enough to hold him. Then he went a step further. This is Satori. He pretty much made admissions to almost all of the shootings. They got a written confession, but he signed it, God. He put down his real name after Satori told him to stop being a wise guy. Working behind the scenes, the 109 squad learned that the suspect had been arrested for drug possession in 2000 and spent six months in Rikers. They also realized that the location where the suspect was stopped was just around the corner from his home. We had sent detectives to his house just to see if his parents were okay. There was a concern for that. And we were able to get in touch with the girlfriend or the ex-girlfriend on the phone. So we were satisfied then at that point that he had not done anything to anyone that he knew. The sun was up. It was Saturday morning. Greta and Satori were exhausted. Look at we were like melting, both of us, you know? It, it's odd because it was a feeling of sadness and super happy. I'm happy that we got this guy. He's in jail. And then I'm feeling like, I can't feel too happy because 
This is a bad thing that happened, you know? All these people got hurt. Someone lost their life. At the precinct, they collected the suspect's clothing for a gunshot residue test and gave him a baby blue hospital gown. Here's Chief Conforti. Two images that I'll never forget. So one of the images in the Daily News was a, a picture of all the red vehicles lined up in the back of the 109th Precinct because they were all evidence that had to be processed. And all you saw was red, 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 red vehicle. And then I remember the perp walking out the precinct in a hospital gown because we had to take his um, clothes due to uh, forensics that was residue, firearm residue that was on it. And I remember the, the look he had on his face walking down the ramp. The perpetrator showed no emotion. He kept his head up and stared straight ahead. That evening, someone who was about to get very close to this case saw him on the TV news. Coming up after the break. In August 2006, Bob Masters was a deputy executive assistant district attorney working for then Queens DA Richard Brown, also known as Judge Brown. Masters was home the night of the shootings when his phone started blowing up with NYPD alerts. The next day, he kept his eye on the news. Images of the perp in his hospital gown were all over the Sunday papers. Large guy in his mid-30s kind of hulking, disquieting presence. I made a mental note that this was likely headed towards being a psychiatric case. That's because the victim's lawyer, Todd Greenberg, was already speaking publicly about his client's mental fitness to stand trial. He told reporters that in the past, his client had been hospitalized for mental illness. I had earlier in my career specialized in handling psychiatric cases, and I presumed at some point I would be spoken to, reached out to, to advise on the case in some way or another. On Monday morning, Master's hunch played out. I, of course, agreed to take the case. The arraignment was on Tuesday, August 29th. It was held in the prison unit at Bellevue Hospital, where the defendant was undergoing a psychiatric evaluation. Over the weekend, another victim had come forward. A Connecticut man who was driving on the Van Wyck Expressway on Friday night found a bullet hole in his trunk when he got home. The crime scene unit recovered a bullet from his car that was linked to the suspect's gun. That brought the number of shooting incidents to 10. The suspect's Cadillac had also been searched over the weekend. Investigators found a second gun, a fully loaded 22 caliber revolver. This was in addition to the 9mm handgun that Officer Caesar found during the car stop. At the arraignment, the defendant was charged with second-degree murder, first-degree assault, and other charges, including criminal possession of a weapon and controlled substances. Right out of arraignments, the issue of the defendant's fitness to proceed was raised. The prosecution had to move fast. It put us in a time bind that we had, really from the moment of his arrest, 144 hours to ultimately get an indictment. Otherwise, the defendant would be released on his own recognizance. Knowing I had all these crimes out there, I had some people who were still in surgery, other people, poor Mr. Opton, hadn't even been waked yet, and I just realized there was a scramble of all of this humanity, I took a moment and I recognized that 
what I could do within a couple of days would be to present just a gun charge. If he could do that, he would buy time to complete the investigation. And then go to the grand jury with, you know, essentially the 10-event extravaganza of the night of August 25th into August 26th. With the clock ticking, Masters took a ride out to the 109. That was my first introduction to uh, Detective Dom Sartori and Jimmy Grotta. Not only were they serious, they understood that it was not going to be a simple matter. I think they made an immediate commitment to it. By the end of the week, Queen's prosecutors had the indictment. The defendant would stay in custody. I began to really focus on assembling the case for each individual case, what was my motive? What was my mode of proof? Here's Detective Satori. Ordinarily, we get the case and then we find everything out, and that leads us to who did it. And then we arrest the guy. We got the guy right away. So now we got to go back and collect evidence. When they searched the Perps Cadillac, they found 36 shell casings, all a match to the 9mm gun found in his car. They also uncovered three magazines, a holster, and two boxes of ammo. One package was what was called frangible. Frangible ammunition is used at shooting ranges. It's softer than regular ammo. At close range, it's safer because it doesn't ricochet as much. The ballistic examiners that I had used, both of them said in their entire careers, they had never seen a gun using this type of ammunition in street crimes. It was just another small piece of circumstantial evidence that made the case all stick together. Ballistic evidence was found at some of the crime scenes, but not all. One by one, Masters, Greta, and Satori went back to the locations. They found shell casings on the ground. In one instance, Detective Grata spotted a bullet hole in a storefront. Here's Satori. It was like a channel that we had cut open, and at the bottom of the channel, just sitting there, was a bullet. Detectives took apart the Upton's car. And we did get ballistic evidence out of that car that linked it. So that was another key piece. They searched the other cars. An emergency service tore those cars apart, and every car we tore apart, we found a bullet in there. Those bullets became very important because we were able to then link them to the gun. And every bullet we found everywhere we went went back to the gun that was in his possession. In the end, they found evidence for all but one crime scene, the seventh incident where a red minivan was shot on the Whitestone Expressway. They also found security footage of the suspect entering and leaving Goldfingers. He parked his car. He comes up and he's seen... He sees the metal detector, and I think that they were frisking people. So he goes back. We believe he put his gun in the car. Then he comes back in, pays a cover charge, and it was just before midnight. He actually took his car away from the valet and parked it himself. The timeline showed that while the suspect was in the strip club, the shootings paused. The important things were that no one else had been in the car all night and that he did discharge the gun. When they combined the physical evidence with the suspect's interview and the victim's statements, they had a solid case. We weren't going to be looking for anybody else, and thereafter, it was really going to depend and turn on the why much more than the who, what, when, or where. It was going to turn on the why. 
Uncovering the why meant stepping into the perp's shoes and exposing some of his quieter moments behind the scenes. Master started with the car stop. He took a ride to offices Peck and Caesar at the Queen South Auto Larceny Unit. From the very beginning of how they told me about the car stop led me to believe that the psychiatric defense that I think everybody saw as being inevitable would not work. It was from a lot of subtleties. Towards the end of the night on August 25th, the pace of the shootings intensified. Between 10.20 and 11.25 p.m., there were six incidents. I think that the perpetrator recognized there were a lot of police cars coming around, and he took a timeout, and I think it was his way of staying off the road for a while, and he went to Goldfinger's. And he was in there for well over an hour, and then not long after he left, uh, probably within a half hour or so after that was when the 10th and final shooting occurred. I think it was becoming clear that the net was closing in. Remember what Officer Peck said about the car stop? His arms and shoulders were out of the car with his hands up. When the perpetrator was stopped by officers Peck and Caesar, he twisted the top half of his body outside of the car and put his hands up. That was a silent confession. If it was an innocent car stop based upon blowing a stop sign, no one reacts that way. They would be producing their license or registration. It, to me, was a full admission that he had done something wrong. Another thing that happened was that when Peck asked the suspect about his license plate, he responded with a detailed explanation of the DMV registration process. That little subtle point to me, once again, revealed that he knew what he was doing. He was oriented as time, place. During the car stop, the suspect was told that his car fit the description of a car involved in multiple shootings. At which point, the perpetrator, I think, beginning to say to himself, I, I may be close to bluffing my way out of this, proceeds to you know, basically try and apply for the Good Citizenship Award of uh, saying, you know what, officers, I don't want to create any more confusion. I'll just leave my car here and I'll take a cab home. What I think happened is something almost out of a, a movie. Probably within the next five minutes, 50 police cars are all descending and this quiet neighborhood transforms. And it became my position and what I argued to the jury was that the perpetrators seeing all of this without anybody accusing him, without, it was very clear that he had been made. After he was handcuffed, he was put in a car with a detective. As they were sitting there, the detective asked him his name and address. And on his own, the uh, perpetrator then just said, I'm having a bad day. That to me became the phrase that I used to begin my opening statement when I tried the case, that he was having a bad day and look at what everybody else had to endure because he was having a bad day. The defendant had a few more telling interactions behind the scenes. While riding in the ambulance to Queens General Hospital, he started a conversation with his police escort. On his own, the defendant just said, Officer, I really fucked up. I'm in a world of shit. And that conversation is very telling because, and, and it's very important, because in a legal sense, in an insanity case, the defendant has to show that he didn't know what he was doing and he didn't know it was wrong. Well, 
those two statements, I really fucked up and I'm in a world of shit, pretty much reveals he knows what he did and he knows it's wrong and he knows he's in legal jeopardy for it. Later, two cops were assigned to watch him in the ER at Queens General Hospital. He engages with them talking about their guns. And they say, you know, what kind of gun? Is that a Smith & Wesson? And uh, they're not really looking to talk. And he goes, I got better than that. He also is now kind of like, uh, you know who I am, right? You know, that he's kind of a celebrity defendant now. And once again, that all makes very clear that he can't say he's Napoleon. He is oriented as to who he is, why he's there. He asked a different cop what amount of time he was looking at. You know, like, well, what do they got for me? What are they going to do to me? The officer said, with what you're charged with, I believe you're facing 25 years. And the defendant's reaction was immediately, no way, not for this. No, I'm not doing that. Not a chance. No way. All of those things in combination to me revealed he knew what he did. He knew it was wrong. At this point, he's only concerned about price point. Taken together, these interactions were damaging to a psychiatric defense. You know, human commerce is natural. People talk. And it's during those unguarded moments that they say things that may be the most revealing. One more thing. Nothing had been mentioned about the perp's mental fitness in his domestic violence hearing the week before. A lot of times, it really comes down to, you know, the guy's got to be crazy to do that. Becomes the initial introduction to the case, and lay jurors may be open-minded to considering it, but as you scrape down and you dig down and you show that the standard is, he, did he know what he was doing and did he know that it was wrong, those small comments, that behavior when he was pulled over, all of that suggested that he knew what he did, he was trying to hide things, he was trying to fool his way through it. On October 5th, 2006, Masters presented the evidence to the grand jury. The grand jury indicted the defendant on 57 counts, including two counts of murder in the second degree and 14 counts of attempted murder in the second degree. After the break, as the wheels of justice turn, a family deals with their loss. In the aftermath of Todd Upton's death, Mary Upton had a lot to deal with. And there was news media swarming my house and wanting to talk to us and standing in our driveway and, you know, canvassing all of our neighbors. Uh, one of my neighbors gave our Christmas card, and that ended up being a picture on the front page of the papers the next morning. In the midst of her shock and grief, something else was on her mind. My husband was the most quiet, gentlest man in the world. Only once did I ever hear him curse and lose his temper. She didn't want her family to become consumed by anger towards the man who took Todd's life. The last thing he would want is, is us hating someone or ruining our lives over that hate. I kept saying to the kids, you know, whoever this is, he's taken all he's gonna get from us. He gets nothing else from this minute on because I knew it could destroy us. The only way forward was forward. If you're going to get up in the morning, you might as well make it the best day you can. Otherwise, stay in bed until you have that good day. And I said that to my kids, and, you know, thank God they each just took that 
and lived with that instead of having that grudge or that hardness to them. Detective Grotta and Detective Satori felt a weight of their own when they made a visit to the Uptons' house on the day Todd passed away. Here's Satori. I remember shortly after the arrest going to the Upton house in Massapequa, and the whole family was there, relatives, everybody, and they wanted answers. And sitting there and explaining what had happened, what was going to happen, the sadness and the anguish on everybody's face, and, and it was one of the roughest nights I can remember uh, in this whole case. For Bob Masters, meeting the Uptons was an inspiration. I went to the wake and I met, you know, Mary, her kids, and I met Todd's brother uh, and sisters. That was a very uh, significant thing for me because when you're taking responsibility for a case, it's an enormous amount of work. And it's nights, it's weekends, it's getting up at five in the morning and it's with you the entire period of time the case is pending. And, you know, going to a wake and seeing someone, uh, seeing their family, that will incentivize you to put all the effort that the case needs. I was absolutely blown away the first day of the wake. There were all these police officers and detectives and the district attorney. We were very touched by that. It was still early in the case, and investigators were hopeful. You know, we had a conversation that... Um, that they did have that person in custody and that um, they would, you know, go through questioning and it would be a long process, but to hang in there and that justice would prevail. And um, in my old life, I used to be a legal secretary uh, when I first got out of high school. Did that for 10 years. So I was very well aware of how the, you know, wheels of justice sometimes go very, very slow. But um, I wanted to hang in there and do that. After the funeral, her college-age daughters didn't want to go back to school, but Mary convinced them to go. I said, you're already registered. I'd prefer that you go and at least try. If you have to come home, I'll bring you home. If you have to call me every single day, you can call me every single day, but I need you to at least try to go back. Mary had her own coping strategy. I was a second grade teacher at the time. I couldn't go in and see those little faces and, and be a sad person. You know, it just wasn't going to work. If I wanted to go back to work, I had to be back 100% and even more than 100% so I could throw myself into my job because I needed something. And it did. It saved me. My job saved me. It took four years for the case to go to trial. Two years in, the defendant's attorney was moved off the case at Bob Masters' request for conflict of interest. For another year, the case limped along. Then, the defendant's second attorney asked to be removed from the case after the defendant threatened him. A third defense attorney came on the case. Finally, in October 2010, four years after the crimes, the defendant went to trial. Mary Upton, who had vowed never to miss a court date, probably set a record. I think I was there for 48 different court appearances time and time again. Sometimes it would be for an adjournment, and sometimes it was just to let the defendant parade into the courtroom with a Bible in his hands or a scapula on. Four years is a long time to wait. The other thing Bob Masters did for me early on, which was such a blessing, was to let me know that whatever happened in this case and whatever justice was metered out was in no way indicative of the value of my husband's life. He said, you know, we have a system, and it's a criminal system, and it has flaws, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but the sentence that's given does not really deem the value 
of the person who's lost. Surprisingly, the defendant chose not to use an insanity defense. Barb Masters can only guess the reason why. If he chose the insanity defense, the burden of proof would be on him. He would be subjected to a medical examination by a doctor of Masters' choice, and Masters didn't think that would go well. Here's Masters. I think the perpetrator did have psychiatric history, but you could see throughout his life that became his go-to kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. The trial lasted six weeks. The Uptons sat through it all. We had an amazing support crew of friends and relatives that came and sat with us every single day. Other victims were there, too. Among those who testified was the shooter's very first victim, Andre Leonik. He was shot in the leg while walking his dog. He'd been out of work for years due to medical complications. By the time Mary took the stand, she was ready. It was very, very moving testimony. Many of the members of the jury were crying. Up where the witness box is, there's always a court officer positioned to be able to guide that witness in and out of the well of the courtroom. And they always have a box of tissues available. And I still remember Mary seeing one of the jurors that was closest to the witness box beginning to cry. And, And she went to hand the box of tissues towards the juror. In court, the defendant did not always behave in his best interest. I'll never forget, he was making a gun motion to his neck as Detective Sartori was up on the stand. Here's Bob Masters. I think he liked to try and play the tough guy. There were a number of times he just acted like he was yawning, like this was all an inconvenience to him. And the judge admonished him, you know, the the jury sees that. And you're not doing yourself any favor behaving like this. And I think he made some sort of statement to the judge about, judge, to me, this is a walk in the park. This is nothing. And, you know, confident that he was going home. I think he was keenly aware that the evidence was becoming more and more substantial every day. In his summation, Masters told the story that he pieced together during his investigation, not just the who, the what, the when, and the how, but why the defendant did what he did. A week before all this happened was this domestic dispute with the girlfriend. I believe he slaps her around. She runs from the house. He chases after her. And police driving by see this. He's taken into custody. The order of protection is issued. And I think he's used up his goodwill with his parents, that he can't go back to his parents and stay with them. And I think what happened was as the days unfolded, he was drinking, he began to use drugs, and it got to be Friday night. And I think he felt sad and lonely. And the only thing that made him feel better was pulling a gun and firing at Mr. Leonic. He felt powerful. And once he fired that gun, that made him feel really, really good. And I think he just went on this eight-hour bacchanal of self-indulgent behavior, that it was wine, women, satellite radio, song, and that every shooting made him him feel better, more powerful. I quoted to the jury, the old Beatles said, happiness is a warm gun. And I think that 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 gun made him feel 
not like a guy living out of his car, but made him feel like somebody again. On November 22, 2010, a Queens jury found the defendant guilty in the murder of Todd Upton and the attempted murder of 13 others. He was found guilty of 20 of 21 counts and sentenced to 384 years in prison. He was convicted of every crime except for the one. It was the seventh shooting where there was no ballistic evidence, no identification. And I was grateful that the jury did not return a guilty verdict on that because it showed that the jury had listened carefully to the evidence. The 384-year sentence sent a strong message. Even if it was cosmetic, that, you know, the end of his sentence would be life and that we were going to advocate that he never be out again, that the number, you know, should be published and the society at large should understand the dimension of what he did and how, you know, a civilized society reacts to that. For the Upton family, the verdict was bittersweet. Sometimes people cheer when you hear a verdict like that, but that was another wasted life. And as much as I don't like what happened to us, he's a human being and he has parents and he has a brother. It was a sad moment. It was a happy moment for all the work that was put into seeing justice, but it was sad because it was another wasted life. The case was unforgettable for the officers who worked it. Here's Jimmy Grata. Everyone involved in the case went on for bigger and better things. Detective Satori was promoted as a result of his work on the case. Today, he's Detective First Grade, working in the 109 squad. Personally, it's probably the most significant case in my career. Here's Chief Conforti. Not many people really knew about this case. It's a weird one. It's weird in the sense that I knew the damage that this individual did. And I almost remember saying to myself, I go, do the people in New York City even know what happened last night? For the Uptons, what happened that night altered their lives dramatically. Both of those detectives were unbelievable in my life. We formed a friendship that lasts to this day. Uh, there's a level of respect there, you know, between us, and I would do anything for either one of them, and I think they know it. They never handled us as the poor victims. They let us have a voice. They, you know, let us speak our mind, and the same with Bob Masters. Every year, Mary runs a charity event in Long Island, the Todd Upton Memorial Golf Tournament in honor of her husband. We can't bring Todd back. All we can do is be an example and make some good come out of some bad. This brings us to the end of season two. From all of us at NYPD, thanks for listening. If you like our show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow the NYPD on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for updates about season three. Breaking the Case is a true crime podcast produced by the New York City Police Department and supported by the New York City Police Foundation. I'm retired Detective Sergeant Wally Zions. Until next time, be safe.